0: that passion, you know, passion and excitement about what God is doing. Um, And when he moves, sometimes it stirs within you so much emotion and excitement um, that uh, you got to testify about what he is, what he's doing in our lives. All right. Um, The last couple weeks, we've been standing for a psalm to read the psalm and then pray for uh, the nation of Israel and all the Chaos going on in the Middle East. So, if you would, could you please stand to your feet out of respect for the word? And uh, we're going to read Psalms chapter one this morning and take a moment to pray for um, the state of our of our world. From Psalms chapter one, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight Is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked. Will perish. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that last line, that the way of the wicked would perish. We continue to pray for peace in the Middle East, shalom for Israel and Palestine and the conflict that has never been resolved from the onset of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and where it is now an escalation of it god we um, we pray more strongly because we feel the intense um, gravity that is pulling the world into uh, this conflict and um, we stand testifying that we need you lord jesus to intercede and come lord jesus come and as we read the prophecies whether this is the birth pains or not God, we get excited about your return, and we continue to pray. May the return of Jesus come quickly. That is where we place our hope. That is where we stand. It's in the promises that you have given us. So, Lord, we pray your promises this morning. May you be victorious. You are a righteous God. We place our hope in you. In Jesus' name we pray. amen amen Amen. all right you may be seated let's get started all right we are um entering into a new series uh this week so we've gone through some epidemics we talked about loneliness and isolation and this series we wanted to get a little bit more in depth with the word of god so if you guys do have your bibles i'm going to be flipping around this this the book of romans um quite a bit uh To set the stage for Romans, just to introduce it a little bit, we get a a book um, that was written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, who did missionary journeys all throughout the Middle East uh, area, the Mediterranean area. And um, he's writing this letter to the Romans. And he expresses his desire to go and be with them, to join with their church and with their people. Um, He's writing it from the city of Corinth to the city of, of uh, the Roman, to Rome, okay? He wrote, um, he's writing this in a, a time where the church is experiencing a time of relative peace, but it's a church that needed a strong dose of the basic gospel doctrine, the doctrine about who Jesus is and what he, what he preached and how he lived and, and how the gospel should be translated and expressed um, in, in everyday life. Uh, one of the cool things that I, I noticed that Paul did was he took a t- some time out of this letter to recognize certain people and say, uh, by name, hey, I long to visit you. At the core of who Paul was, he was relational. That he said, it would be like us if we wanted to say, um, Stephen Cole, right? I've never been to Ashland, Ohio, or Ashland, Ohio, right? I've never been there. But there's plenty of people that I know there that I would love to go and visit at some point and say, hey, how are you guys doing? Right? Like I've longed to come see you, see how you live, see how your church functions, see how you interact with the people. What does Ohio even look like? I'm not quite sure. I've just heard a lot about it. Right? That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, hey, my friends, my people in Rome, um, ones that I've met along my journey, I've never been there, but this is a letter for you. Um, the letter to the Romans, it stands as a, or it is presented as a systematic way of, of explaining or understanding theology. So he walks through uh, this book saying, hey, um, here is what Jesus said. Here is what Jesus did, right? This is how we should be living our lives, uh, In Romans, so go ahead and open up your your Bible to Romans chapter 1. Let's see if I can get here. Okay. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, sorry, verse 16, says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We're not going to hit the entire text of Romans. I've heard of churches spending an entire year in this book, right? There is so much deep, systematic theology within this book. There are so much deep, intertwined truths about who Jesus is. What we want to do through this series is, is try to tackle or, or give you a, a summary of four of the themes that run through this book, okay? So I'm going to start this week by um, talking about the role of the law, and then next week we're going to hear from Garrett, he's going to talk about justification by faith, and then the, f- the following week we'll go through sin and redemption, and then the week before Thanksgiving we'll get into the unity in Christ, Okay. All of these themes run throughout this book. Um, I wanted to start with the role of the law because it kind of sets up this uh, the whole foundation for um, justification, for redemption, for holiness, for righteousness, for all of those big theological terms that it's they're hard to understand if you don't have a background and understanding of what the law was and what the law was intended to do for us, okay? Why did God give us the law, and and how do we respond to it, Um, and then what is the implications of the law in our lives, okay? As I read in in Psalm chapter 1, David was someone who delighted in the law, that he loved the law, that he meditated on the law day and night, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, like, he, does, he does say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the presentation of these theological terms that Paul gives us, he doesn't go into it with um, any hesitation or holding back on some deep, profound truths. And, and this is what I've been challenged with from that verse, because that one verse has kind of established or convicted me throughout the entire reading of the book of Romans. Was that sometimes in the theological realm, right, we'll take these passages of Scripture and say, well, that doesn't really fit in our current cultural context, or I can't explain it within where we are, when that's not what it's meant to be, okay? In the theological world, that's, that's called eisegesis. We're taking a piece of Scripture and we're saying, hey, let's put it into our culture and try to understand culture by taking the Scripture and putting it here, When we're pulling the things out of the Bible, right, and we're taking it from the Bible first and then putting it over our culture, we're pulling it out saying this is exegesis. What does the Bible say first as our source of truth, okay, and how does that apply to where we are now, okay? When we do it that way, when we take the Bible first and read the Bible first, and that's our source of truth, Sometimes our culture doesn't line up with what the truth is because the culture is wrong. Okay? So, I'm not going to say which direction it's supposed to be sometimes. I'm just going to say, hey, here's the Scripture. This is the Gospel. Paul says, here is the Scripture. This is what Jesus said. Then, we can see how does the culture match up with what Jesus is saying, okay? That is what Paul is trying to do. He comes from, or he's writing this from the city of Corinth, which was known for all kinds of immorality. He says, I'm living within a culture of immorality, so I'm seeing this firsthand, and this is what needs to be applied theologically to these different scenarios. So let's look at the law. the greatest miracle that God has ever done was the creation of the universe, right? Like, he spoke into existence the entire universe. Yes, when we think about miracles, right, the signs and the wonders, and we think about somebody being healed from leprosy or having their their sight restored to them or death being able to hear again, all of those operate within our natural realm, right? The, the miracle of, of receiving sight from blindness is amazing. It's miraculous. If I knew someone who was blind and I prayed over them and they received their sight again, I would be in absolute awe of God's miraculous power, right? But all of that is functioning within the realm of nature, okay? The realm of nature is that it, he, he has created a world in which we live in that is governed by law. He has given us a natural law that governs the way that we live. Nature itself is under his providential govern, government, right? His governance is providential. Um, when I'm saying this, this is all the scientific terms that we can bring into this. We live with gravity, right? We have laws of gravity where I can't just float into the air. If I were to float into the air, it would be unnatural, right? Because the law has said you will remain on the ground due to gravitational forces, right? An object in motion stays in motion until another object acts upon it. All of Newton's three laws of motion, right, are the laws in which God has created and designed all of nature, everything that we've seen, God spoke this into existence. Okay? So he's created this, this law of nature, the, all of the laws of thermodynamics. I mean, all of those big scientific terms are laws of nature. Okay, We have the physical law, which we live and abide in, right? That we can't go outside of those physical laws without supernatural intervention, right? If God really wanted to, he could say, hey, you guys can all fly. It's not outside of his power, but he created a law that says, I'm not going to allow that to happen within the realm of physical nature, okay? That is the physical law. The spiritual law is one that was designed for us in a similar manner, okay? He gave us the natural law to govern the way that we function on earth. He gave us the spiritual law to show us and to guide us into a spiritual life. Right? So living by faith and living by law are two completely different states. If we're living by faith, we're living in a different state than if we're living by law. There's, four, or there's six different functions of the law that I want us to see today about how this law really works in our life. Okay? The first function of the law is to show who God is and to reveal his holy character and his perfect righteousness. And when I'm saying the law, I'm talking about the spiritual law. Okay? And we get this from Romans chapter 3, verse 20. It says... Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Okay. Great theologian named Augustine wrote this. The law binds us as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it to know how to ask for the help of grace. The law gives knowledge to sin, all right? We don't know what sin is apart from the law. The law was given so that we might know what sin is. I, I have a good example of this, okay? I'm coaching soccer, like literally right now. My team is playing, okay? They're down four to one, poor guys, but In soccer, okay, I don't use a whole lot of uh, sports analogies because sometimes it's like, I don't care about sports, but sports are a great way of understanding what the law is. When you play soccer or you play football or you play basketball, there's rules that govern the game, right? There's a law of the game in which says if you are running to score a goal but you're behind the last defender, you're off sides, Okay? Or if you're throwing in the ball from the sideline and you lift up your back foot, it's an illegal throw-in. The reason why the law is important is because you're you're setting a standard in which everybody should be abiding by. If I lift up my foot and I do an illegal throw-in, the other team gets the ball. Now, the rule has to be enforced for it to have any type of meaning to it. If I'm throwing the ball, with my foot up like this, and they're turning the ball over, and then the other team does the same thing, and we don't get the ball back? What's my little guy's gonna say? That's not fair. Right, you guys ever heard that? That's just not fair. These refs suck, right? I hear it all the time. They didn't call it, he pushed me, he pushed me, he extended, you know, he was off sides, and we complain about it all the time yesterday in my game. I had to repent of this. I had a a kid, he was running, he had made an amazing play. He got behind the defensive line and he was going to kick the ball and the defender from the other team came up and just punched him right in the back, sent him to the ground, he twisted his ankle, and he's one of my best players, and he's on the ground holding his ankle, and he's hurt. And I went... And I threw my clipboard on the ground, and I said, ref, you got to call it. I was so mad. I was so angry. Right? The ref called it, and I had to say, oh. (laughs) Sorry. The point was, I threw my clipboard in anger. In my entire sideline, all the parents, my kids, my, all my kids on the field looked at me like, whoa, I've never seen Coach so mad before. Right? In my heart, I was going, yeah, but the anger was so righteous. I was right. That was a foul, right? I convinced myself that my anger was righteous because the law says that this is wrong, right? That this is punishable by a penalty kick. He deserves the penalty kick. And he got it. So last night when I was laying down with my son, putting him to bed and praying with him, I said, Todd, I'm sorry, buddy. You saw me angry today. And in my mind, I'm, I'm thinking that this is so much greater than a game. That In Matthew chapter 5, when he starts giving the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you have anger in your heart, You've committed murder. I was angry. I committed murder in my heart towards the referee. Even though the ref got the call right, and I had to say, Todd, I'm sorry I was a bad example for you of how to control your anger. I know he gets it from me, you guys. Like, if you know my son, you know me. Um, And I said, will you forgive me? said yeah dad of course i forgive you the point is the law is what unveils the sin the law is what makes us conscious of the sin apart from the law we would know no sin apart from the law everybody could go and do whatever they wanted to do because there is no jurisdiction over what is right and what is wrong god establishing the law is establishing this standard that says this is right And this is wrong. And we delight in that because now we know what is right and what is good. The second function of the law is to show the increase of sin in the human mind because the works of the law cannot change the nature of the person doing them. The the law can only reveal sin and not remove it. Okay? Okay? The law is set as the standard to reveal it and to unveil it and say this is what the sin is, but it can't get rid of it. There is no way for the law to get rid of the sin. It is designed simply to be the informative word to say that this is right and this is wrong. When we go to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 8, he says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. The law itself is not sin. It cannot be the sin. It's not, indeed, what I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Without the law, we don't know that coveting is a sin, right? Because it says in the law, do not covet. So it's what defines the law for us, or what defines sin for us. No amount of law-keeping can make a person righteous because the root of man's sinfulness is in the fallenness of man's heart. Man's basic problem is in what he is, not in what he does. However, sinful acts are but the outward expression of the fallen nature that contain sinful thoughts if we look back at romans chapter 3 right before uh, verse 20 that we read earlier it says now we know that whatever the law says it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced in the whole world held accountable to god the law is what gives us that accountability to god the reason why we repent and we come before god in confession is because we realize ah i have not been obedient fully to the law That I've done something that is outside of what God's design or desire is for us. The third function of the law is to reveal God's wrath and judgment. Verse 18 of chapter 1 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress truth, by their wickedness. This should bring us great comfort in the law because the law is the one that will judge the sin against the sinner. We don't take that position. We don't need to. We're not the ones handing out judgment on people because the law is already doing that. The law is the one that hands out judgment the judgment reveals wrath and says that God loves truth, God loves goodness, and God will define what that is. He will take care of rebellion and wickedness as defined by the law. The fourth function of the law is to restrain evil, okay? So though the law cannot change the human heart, it should make you afraid of sinning. It can't change the human heart. This is, the law is not meant to change your heart, but it can prevent you from doing some of the things that you know are not right. This part's hard because it should actually scare you. The law should scare you. It should prevent you from doing evil because the law is what defines who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. The law is the convictor. It says, in, if you are living of the law and you're submitting yourself under the law, your destination is either heaven or your destination is either hell. The law says there is a right and there is a wrong. The law convicts. The law says this is right, this is wrong. But this is where the beauty is. The beauty is in the fifth function of the law to show that salvation is by faith, by faith in Jesus and in Jesus alone. So in, in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, he says, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. This is the beauty of Jesus. Jesus. The law has set out before us right and wrong. And if we're submitting ourselves to law and say that this law defines my righteousness, I'm either good or I'm evil. I know in my heart of hearts that in my flesh and in my nature as a human being, I'm over here. I am destined for this place because In in function number six, as we read it, the sixth function of the law is to show that the law is an organic whole. That the law is a unit. To break one law is to be guilty of breaking them all. And, And I know that I've broken one. I know that I'm guilty of breaking them all. I've broken the law. I'm a law breaker. However, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus came into this world. He he descended from heaven to come to earth to fulfill all of the requirements of the law. The only one to ever be perfect, to ever fulfill all of the divine guidance, all of the the standard in which God has set to say, even just in the Ten Commandments alone, to not covet, to not steal, to not lie, to not murder, to not, you know, to not, to not choose. Jesus didn't do them so that me and myself over here and all of my sinfulness might be taken from this spot and placed in righteousness. Without the law, it'd be all jumbled up in a mix. There would be no definition between right and wrong. The law tells God's children what will please him as you can see as you walk through this sort of progression of it through the law the knowledge of sin is revealed then the law works its wrath and then the law shows the sinfulness of man the law was given so that the sin offense of man might uh, of man against god might abound but the law is good holy and righteous and jesus comes to fulfill the law so that we can be set free from its bounds Romans chapter 3, verse 19 through 20 again. Now we know that what things soever the law said, it says to tell them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Hopefully these passages push you into that deep, deep thankfulness for Jesus. That if you haven't realized the this, this standard that God has set out for us before, that you would be able to recognize through the law that your destination is not somewhere you want to be. But in the gift of Jesus Christ, he makes us clean again. He washes us of all of our impurities. It makes me think of the heinousness of the cross, of the ugliness of the cross that Jesus took upon himself, all of our sins upon his shoulders, that he was whipped, beaten, and cursed. It says those who are under the law are cursed. Jesus became the curse of the law, so that we wouldn't have to experience the curse of the law. That is what we put our hope in as believers in Jesus, is that he has set us free to live under a law of faith instead of a law of conviction, that through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have a law of the Spirit of Christ we're set free from the shackles that bind us by the law and we're set to live in the freedom of the law of Christ to love and go make disciples because Jesus has rescued us from the law the sobering reality is that if Jesus was not forsaken on the cross by the living God then we are still in our sins And we have no redemption. We have no salvation from sin. Christ took our sins so that we will not be required to pay the price for our sins. We are saved from our sins because of what Jesus did for us. I want to spend a moment and just thank Jesus in prayer and pray with you guys and we're going to go into a time of worship, and, and just like always, we're going to have a couple people in the back. If, if through the next two worship songs, you guys want to receive prayer, if you've never understood the condemnation of the law and the gift that Jesus has given through his death and resurrection, I would love if you guys would go and pray with one of our prayer people to experience the freedom that that gives. Okay? If you guys would, go ahead and bow your heads with me. Jesus this, this simple message of the gospel is where we hang our hats where we place our hope where we rest assured in the eternity of our salvation in the eternity of our state of being God that we will be with you in heaven because you have said if you, we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord Then we will be saved. We're confessing this morning that Jesus Christ is Lord over all things. God, I thank you. I'm in deep, deep gratitude for the life that you lived. The life that you lived, that you were born as we were born, a baby in a manger. You experienced all the things that we experience as human beings. You were tempted, you were tried, and yet you were without sin. You fulfilled the fullness of the law, your perfect life. God fulfilled the law of the Lord, and yet you took it to the cross that at the end of your life you said, I will take upon the sins of all people, and you carried my sin. The times where I've messed up, where I've gone astray from the law, the times when I've thrown my clipboard and gotten angry, you took it on the cross. And you hung it on a tree. You became a curse so that I wouldn't have to. God, that that gift that you gave changes my entire life. Everything that I am is, is due to you. The gift of salvation, freedom from the law, to live in the fullness of Christ. To watch that sin die on the cross. For me to know that it is finished, it's all taken care of, is where I rejoice And to see that you conquered it, God, that you took it to the grave and then you rose from that grave and proclaimed victory over that sin, my sin, draws me to repentance, draws me to gratitude and thankfulness for all that you've done and to see you ascend into heaven with the promise that you're coming back again, God, gives me the hope into the future that you are going to come back again and, and we're going to join you in the heavens and we're going to ascend into the sky with you, God, and we, are, we will be with you for all of eternity. That is where I place my hope for the rest of my days. It's in you, Jesus. It's in you. God, I thank you for this beautiful story of the gospel and what it means for us. May it impact us and turn the inside of us to completely live our lives for you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.